Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Peter Hartlob. Welcome to the big event. I'm Heather Knight. Welcome to San Francisco City Insider. So this is a crossover episode, Heather? Yes, a very special crossover episode. Only the second time this has ever happened in Chronicle history. Yeah, and we're winging it, um, winging it today. Yes, which you'll probably figure out imminently. Yeah, this is not our 19th take. (laughs) Um, This is the first take that you're hearing. We're nailing it. Uh, We had a podcast. We had a live event just last week. Yeah, we were on Valencia Street in the Mission at the Beta Brand Store. It's a clothing store by day, but every Thursday night it turns into podcast theater where podcasters come and record an episode in front of a live audience. And it was a lot of fun. We figured um, nobody would come to ours because it was not only a Warriors playoff game night, but there was a um, rainstorm happening as well. So we thought we'd probably be talking to nobody. Yeah, we we had like 109 RSVPs, and I thought we were going to get six, six people. (laughs) Yeah, but um, it was a packed house and a great audience. Yeah, really good audience. And we had great guests. Um, They're going to be on this podcast today. Amanda Guest from BFF.FM, she founded this radio station that... uh, It's an online radio station out of the mission and tells her story. It's a great story. Yeah, she was great. We also had Dr. Emily Silverman from SF General. When she isn't busy saving lives at the city's only trauma center, she uh, also runs a podcast called The Nocturnists, where doctors tell their behind-the-scenes stories of what it's really like to treat us. Yeah, I've been binging them, and they're fantastic. And we had our Muni Diaries friends, Eugenia Chen and Tara Ramroop, were there. It was super fun to talk to them, as always. We got a burrito afterwards, of course. Yeah, it was a very, very mission experience. Um, We had trivia. You won't hear that. We showed archive photos. Not so good on audio, (laughs) so you're not going to see that today. So if we have another live event, come out to the live event. But in the meantime, listen to our podcasts. Yeah, so I host San Francisco City Insider. Um, It's usually politicians, but sometimes other people who work in the city circles or are experts on certain subjects, and I always subject them to a lightning round at the end. And you will hear three lightning rounds on this episode because we made everybody who we had weigh in on that as well. Yeah, lots of lightning rounds. And I host the big event, and um, it's a little bit more frivolous. So <laughs> we'll, we'll rank the it's-its. Um, I have a lot of interviews with people who are kind of local cultural celebrities, and, uh, and we just uh, talk about fun stuff. So subscribe to both of our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to support local journalism by subscribing to The Chronicle. As we've seen in the city recently, it's more important than ever to support the free press. Go to sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. Well said. The big event and City Insider crossover episode. Thanks for listening. So actually, the podcast is starting now, right? Welcome to our podcast. (laughs) Hey! Just got here out of the rain. Sorry you're missing the Warriors game. So once again, Heather Knight of City Insider, Peter Hartlove of The Big Event. This podcast will be on both of our podcasts, a special crossover episode. Yeah, um, and this is our um, crossover episode, and it's about the Mission District. It's about our guests 
Um, but we also, little thing, we figured out that this is both of our 20th anniversary at the Chronicle. Yes. Um, we I both was, started when, when we were seven years old. Yeah, she was 12. <laughs> I was 29. Uh, but um, anyway, I, I thought we'd show some embarrassing pictures to start out. So this is the SFPD press pass. I had hair. Um, you were. I had bangs. You had bangs. Twelve years old. I think you had a pink princess phone in the other <laughs> hand. Um, so we're going to just ask each other a couple of questions just about 1999 at the Chronicle. Okay. How did you wind up at the Chronicle in 1999? I was a courtroom reporter in Los Angeles. I had actually covered part of the O.J. Simpson trial, and I wanted to get out of Los Angeles. Um, never unpacked my boxes. Wanted to get back up here and uh, uh, just took whatever job I could, which was the examiner, which everybody said it was about to close and that I'd be there for six months and get fired, <laughs> but uh, ended up staying at the Chronicle and it worked out. What, what, was, your, what was your introduction of the Chronicle? Um, I started in third grade, um, right out of college, actually. Uh, I, they had two-year internships back then because we had lots of advertising. It was during the dot-com, first dot-com boom with Webvan and Pets.com and everybody taking out full-page ads in the Chronicle. So the paper every day was like this thick, and they had money to hire two-year very young interns. So I was hired for a two-year internship and then hired permanently after that. And I started in the now long-defunct Friday section, I don't know if any longtime subscribers remember that. Probably not. It wasn't very Shout memorable. Shout out to the Friday section. It was, it, was it was where all the very young people, the very old people, and the injured people were sent to work. <laughs> so, where, was, where did you live? Did, were you in the city? Yes. I, my first apartment in San Francisco was in the Inner Sunset, 8th and Judah, founded on Craigslist. I remember my room was about five or $600 a month, and now I do not know how um, brand new reporters at the Chronicle can afford to live anywhere near the paper. It's pretty no. crazy. No. Do you remember your first story? One of my first stories was the 75th anniversary of the big roller coaster at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. Nice. It was very hard-hitting journalism. Did you win any awards for that? I don't think so. <laughs> Um, and did you think you were going to be, like, when you were 1999, did you think, this is where I'm going to be, like, 20 years from now, this is my landing spot? Were you, were you thinking this is where you'd be? That probably didn't occur to me um, as a brand new intern, but I never applied for anything else in the 20 years. I've always been very happy to be where I am. I love the city, and I love the paper, I love my coworkers, and I don't really want to go anywhere else. Okay, so one more question for you. Worst day at the Chronicle... Um, in 2009, so this would have been both of our 10-year anniversaries around there, um, Hearst announced that it was losing a million dollars a week, and we had to give major concessions in our union contractor. They were going to close the paper. We all thought, well, that's it for us in journalism. The end is near, but we had a pretty fantastic turnaround. We're making money now and um, thriving, so Yeah, I remember very that. Lucky. It was <laughs> awful. I remember that meeting, um, the editor who's gone now, um, just, there was no light at the end of the tunnel, and he was reading from what looked like, like a paper towel he had gotten in the bathroom, like, <laughs> and there was no optimism at all, and I remember I actually, this is true, I had um, my optical plan owed me a pair of free glasses, so I left that meeting and went to my optician's office 
just to get my free glasses before the whole thing tanked and I lost my job. And I still have those, they're so ugly, but they're a reminder, you know, of how low things can go. We're making money now, we're doing good. I yeah. love being at the Chronicle now. Yeah. Um, okay, final question for you. Um, what is uh, the weirdest or best, actually let's go with the best thing you've ever expensed? Oh. <laughs> Uh, well, as part of our Total SF program, we should explain what that is. It's an offshoot. We both do regular daily journalism, but as an offshoot, we like to do events like this celebrating what's fun about San Francisco, so, since there's obviously so much wrong with the city right now, which I write about in most of my columns. Um, but we like to remember what's good. So we did Total Muni last year, where we rode every Muni line in one day, and we um, decorated a cable car at Christmas. We made an Itzit costume for Halloween. Uh, <laughs> But I think one of my favorite events was we've started a movie series showing movies um, filmed in San Francisco. X-Men 3 is not on the list. No. Um, Sorry, Hillary Ronan. <laughs> we started in April at the Balboa Theater, and we showed So I Married an Axe Murderer. And I expensed and got approved a bagpiper. A bagpiper. <laughs> That's awesome. That must have felt good when you're going in the expense form oh, thing and just yeah. typing in bagpiper. <laughs> It didn't come down in the drop-down menu. It was really weird. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. And how about you? Craziest expense? Uh, I once expensed $63 worth of Bigfoot paraphernalia. Um, it's hard to top that. Um, we have expensed some crazy stuff in the last I year. I liked our X-rated fortune cookies. Yeah, the, there's X-rated fortune cookies at the, is it the San Francisco Fortune Cookie Company? The Golden Company? Gate Cookie Factory. Yeah, they were not X-rated, though. They were like... <laughs> PG-13, but just weird. Just kind of creepy. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, um, I think one of our favorite um, things to do now is podcasting and learning about new um, storytelling forms. So it's not just writing, but now since we're focused so much on the digital side, we have to think about how to tell stories and draw people in in different ways. So that can be cool graphics, photos, videos, but we both really enjoy podcasting because um, it's a new way to hear. I like that you can hear the person you're interviews, vo interviewing's voice and really be inside the conversation, not just reading what they told you. So um, I think with that, we can begin interviewing our guests. Yeah, yeah. I'm super excited. Our first guest, um, I discovered BFF.FM uh, and... I, I think it was Burrito Justice in the back there invited me on his show a couple years ago. And since then, I have checked it out constantly. It's just this eclectic. I don't like to compare it to college radio or community radio because it's something more. It's different and, and more, I think, um, diverse and unexpected. And I, I just love it. I listened to it this morning. Amanda Guest, general manager and founder and executive director. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Many titles. So I wanted to ask you, that five years old now? Uh, we're in our sixth year. Sixth year. What was your very, very first radio experience? Do you remember the first time you heard radio or that it just came calling to you? So I don't remember this, but my parents told me that when I was a baby, I was extremely high maintenance, and I just wanted to be paid attention to constantly. <laughs> they, you know, they were like, you were a really happy baby, but you never wanted to be put down. You always wanted to be like talked to or interacted with. And so my parents used to put me in my crib, and then they'd turn on NPR. <laughs> and I would hear the voices talking, and I would just think my parents were talking to me, and I would just sack right out. So that's how they used to put me to sleep. 
was with NPR. That's awesome. Um, and then later, I mean, I think, like, I grew up in the 80s. I think, like, a lot of 80s kids, I would make mixtapes where I would pretend I was a DJ and play stuff that I taped off the radio. Um, but I think I didn't really start to make the connection with radio until I was, a, I was 17 years old. I was about to uh, go to my local state college. And I was just, like, home one night, flipping through the dial, and I heard just the weirdest song I had ever heard in my entire life. Like, I was, like, going through, and I'm like, what is this? Like, it wasn't even, like, a song. It was just, like, sounds. And I listened for about, like, 10, 15 minutes, and then the DJ came on, and they said, you're listening to Salem State College Radio. And I was going to Salem State College in a few weeks, and I had just had no idea that this college even had a radio station. Uh, so on the first day, when all the students came in, they had a groups and clubs presentation, and someone from the radio station came up and said, you know, we have this radio station on campus, and anyone's welcome to come down if you can find it. And it was very, very deep down in the bowels of the campus center. But I trekked down there in the shadows, and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> well, I, I want to hear more about that. I mean, how did you, were, did you immediately find a family, or, or was it maybe a little bit less clean than that? Um, well, going into it, I think, so originally I was like, oh, I'm going to become a DJ. I'm going to be really, like, I'm going to have, like, a cool radio voice and listeners, and I'll be super, super hip and cool. And then I got in there, and uh, the first thing they told me was, you know, we're a college radio station. We don't play any commercial music. So they wouldn't play anything that had ever been played on a commercial radio station <laughs> wow. at all. And to complicate this, uh, this was at Salem State College in Salem, Massachusetts. And right, right across uh, the bridge was uh, a, the one remaining independent alternative station called WFNX, which was in Lynn, although they said Boston. And uh, they would listen to the college kids, and they would hear what was like up and coming, and then they would play it on their station, and then we couldn't play it anymore. <laughs> so it was like we were like the farm team for them. We were like constantly like playing stuff. Um, but it was extremely strict, and I was like, well, I really want to do this, so I guess I have to learn about all this music that I didn't know about before. And that's kind of like how things uh, shifted, because it, for me, it started out being very much about, like, I, you know, I want to be cool and have have a presence on the radio, and it turned more into this just like, that like exploding brain meme, where you're like, whoa, there's so much music in the world that I had no idea existed, and you know, the universe of music is just so vast and deep, and there's just so much for everyone to like, you know, get into and geek out on, and that's kind of the thing that really got me hooked on it, and I think that's the thing that's just kept me doing it all this time. I just have to ask, what was the penalty? Like, if, if you played something from Wilco AM, and then they <laughs> played it, and then you played it again, what, what, what was the banishment? Or Yeah, I mean, like, when I joined, this was, like, 1994, which, uh, for, like, indie rock geeks in the house, that was, like, a really fertile uh, time period for indie rock, so there was a lot of people, like, lining up to do radio shows, so it was pretty brutal. Like they, you would get warned a couple times, and then they just wouldn't give you your show back. And at the time, when I started, I was a you know I was a freshman. I was like 17, and I wanted the Friday night six to nine time slot because that was like <laughs> one of the best. And also like I had no social life, so I was like, this is perfect. Uh, Radio is my boyfriend, and uh, <laughs> and uh, they were like were like really hesitant to give it to me because they were like, oh, who are you? Um, but you know, my lack of a social life ended up working out. I, I love your DJ work, and I've listened to it. But I I think of you like as a producer and an organizer, and just like kind of a kick-ass leader. 
Were there elements of that early on? No. Um, early on, so my college station had an executive board, which was all student run. So each year they would have elections. And every year people would say, hey, Amanda, you should run for something. And I would say, you know, no, I, you know, I don't, I'm just, it's, this isn't what I'm about. I just want to show up and do my radio show and, and have that be it. And also I should mention that I was in college for an extremely long time. So uh, we're talking like a, like a decade of matriculation. So, uh, so there were like many generations of students that passed through and I was there. And it really just got to a point where the station kind of went through a lull where there wasn't as much interest anymore. And there were like, frankly, wasn't anyone around who really cared. And I was kind of like, oh, all right, fine. I'll be the program director, but like just for a semester until we like get someone who's really into it. And then that's how I became the general manager of my college station because again, I was the, the PD and then no one wanted to be GM because there was math involved. And so I was like, all right, fine, I'll you know fill out these spreadsheets and file these FCC reports. And and that was really, and that was about like 10 years into it, or you know, or like around there. Um, where you know I had been part of a station for a really long time, and that's kind of where the shift happened, where I wasn't even so much into DJing and playing the music as I realized how important it was just to keep something like that alive. Yeah. And I think that's sort of where my mind got kind of reset into, you know, maybe I'd like to run a station someday. You, you came to San Francisco in, in what year? Uh, 2012. Were you thinking then, I'm going to come here and run a radio station? Was that the intention? Yes. Yeah, that, that seems like a hard time. This is, seems like a hard place and a hard time to do that, but maybe I'm wrong because you've no, done it. No, you are not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I had, had kind of had this like late in life epiphany where um, I got married, we bought a house, we, like, we actually literally had like a house with a white picket fence in the suburbs of Massachusetts, and we were like, eh, this is okay, but you know, uh, this isn't really quite doing it for us. And around that time, I, was, um, I worked in publishing, and I was working on uh, game development books. And so I'd get flown out here for GDC every year, and I worked on film books, so I'd go to L.A. But I kept wanting to come back to San Francisco. It was a place I had been once when I was a child, when I was 12. And uh, my family had gone on this epic California trip, and we started in San Francisco and ended in Disneyland. But even when I was 12, I was like, San Francisco's so cool. And I just thought, like, this was a place where really cool adults lived. <laughs> um, and so when I went back as an actual adult, uh, I, you know, I was like, wow, no, I really, I kind of still have that feeling that I had as a child where this is, there's a, just great energy here and, you know, a lot of, you know, good and bad. There's just a lot of everything happening here. And I just really fell in love with that and started, went from, uh, you know, coming here from work uh, to meeting people and then just coming back for fun. And then one day I was sitting in Dolores Park with my friend and my husband called uh, to see how things were going. And I was like, hey, how would you feel if, if we just like blew up our whole lives in Massachusetts and moved <laughs> to San Francisco? And he's from Denver, so he didn't really care about New England. So he was like, yeah, sounds great. Um, and the one thing about the move that really had me anxious was uh, at that point I had been at my college radio station this entire time so it had been over 20 years that I was there and I had graduated from being like the really young freshman to being like the creepy old person that never <laughs> left and it was really funny too because there was like uh, students and community members and all the community members were guys that were like mid-60s early 70s and then there was me and I'm like I'm in your cohort 
which was kind of fun. Uh, but yeah, but that was the one thing that I was like, how am I going to do radio when I get to San Francisco? So I, that was definitely in the back of my mind that as I was thinking about like what could my life in San Francisco be, that was a big part of it. How did you end up in the coolest space in the city? I mean, I, I've been in the secret alley. Heather has too. It's we've, very cool. You should describe it for people who yeah, haven't Yeah, we, we've been, been on roll, roll Over Easy, both of us, and I've been on Burrito <laughs> Justice's show. It's like a pirate ship mixed with a Lemony Snicket book <laughs> mixed with... Uh, there's an arcade, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's an it's an art space. Uh, a lot of people uh, like to call it um, a uh, rainforest cafe for adults, because <laughs> it's very much like that. See, Burrito Justice knows. It's like that whole aesthetic. Uh, so you walk in and you walk inside and you look. You suddenly like look like it looks like you're outside, and each office in the space is a building. And uh, BFF.FM is in two of the buildings. One of them is like a sea shanty shack with a ship crashing through it. And then the inside of it looks like you're inside a submarine that's a library for some reason. Um, and then the other room is uh, you know, more of like a traditional like stucco building. And then we actually um, revamped that to look like a 1930s noir um, detective office to kind of fit in more with the history of San Francisco. So what was BFF.FM like on its first day, and what are you like now compared to that? Okay, um, so the first day, uh, we had made the decision that we were going to have our first broadcast be on September 1st, 2013. Uh, we had a little bit of a problem because the board console, like the broadcast console that we ordered, didn't show up. Um, so we were using like a Denon DJ mixer, we, and um, my husband, Forrest, is also the station engineer, and he's kind of been the one where from the beginning I was like, hey, I want to start this radio station, you're the closest, smartest person I know, <laughs> uh, you know, and I knew what all the components were from years of experience, but didn't really know exactly how everything fit together, so he was like really the connector, um, but on the first day we had this like Denon uh, controller, which was not a broadcast console, filling in. And then in the early days of BFF.FM, the whole station was run by a single 2005 Lenovo laptop that my husband, again, Burrito remembers these days, uh, that uh, my husband got for free because his office was throwing it away. And he said, do you care what I do with this? And they said, no. And he was like, perfect. I'm like, great, free computer. And we had uh, two microphones, and that was it. And now uh, we have two studios. So our main studio, we have you know, three, three microphones. We have brand new digital console, CD players, turntables, pretty much everything you could want. Uh, we have a second production studio where people record for our overnight shifts. And all of that was funded by our DJs and our listeners. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I should mention, it's the Bestie program uh, is is you've got the pin, so I'm reminded here. Um, it, it, I'm just going to interject and say, I mean, it feels like San Francisco when you listen to this station and, and, and like an organic San Francisco, and um, I sometimes will turn it on randomly. Just uh, I, I wanted to ask you, what did you take from that college radio station experience, and what did you not want to take? What, what did you not want to have replicated? That's a really good question. Um, I think the thing that I didn't want to take um, was at my college station, there were a lot of years where, you know, pe the 
people just didn't care about the studio. And so you'd go in and, you know, someone would have like, you know, cut a cable for no reason, or there were never any styluses on the turntable. Everything was always broken. And I would always say like, if I ever had a station, nothing would ever be broken and everyone would be happy all the time. And we, you know, it's kind of crazy, but we've been able to really set that intention where everyone that joins the community, we just tell them, like, this is different. This isn't like if you've been part of a st station before, this is different. We're all going to be really respectful of the equipment and really try to take care of this because what this is is really precious and special. You know, there just aren't too many things like this in San Francisco these days, uh, especially, you know, being in the secret alley. So that's kind of baked into it where it's like, you know, we're going to do this together and we're going to make sure that everything's working um, so that was a big thing, the broken equipment. And then, but the thing that I wanted to kind of bring was that, um, you know, even though we had that really strict rule about not playing commercial music, everyone was kind of able to just geek out on what they wanted to. So if you were into like a really archaic kind of music or something super obscure, you could, you know, drill down into that as much as you wanted. So I try to give all the DJs as much freedom as they want to really, you know, express themselves and play what they want. And it's funny because DJs will email me all the time and they'll be like, well, I was thinking about changing my format or I, you know, wanted to try having this person on. And I'm always like, yeah, you know, do it. Do, do, you, do you get a sense of discovery still listening to your own station? Yes. Uh, if, yeah, some of the things are like weird little stamps that I put on it years ago and I forgot about. Um, like we have an automation system that runs uh, when there isn't programming, which these days is really rare. Uh, but the other day, I, there happened to be a time where the automation was running, and I heard a song that I had bootlegged at a show in Boston 15 years ago. Like I just like pulled out a recorder and recorded this band. And then I was like, well, this is like a really cool like one-off song that happened, so I'll put it in the BFF automation. So it's like moments like that where I'm like, oh, that's funny. Like maybe someone else heard that, and maybe they're like, what is that? Um, and so that could lead to a moment of discovery for them. Um, but yeah, all the time I'm just blown away by um, not only things that I hear on the station that I really like, but connections uh, between the things that different people are playing. Very cool. Cool. Well, we highly recommend listening to it. And now it's time to for the lightning round. Okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. <laughs> what is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Uh, so that depends on what kind of burrito it is, but my all-time favorite is the veggie burrito at Cancun. Uh, but I also, because I can't, I'm not a big, I can't do all the carbs. So I usually get a baby burrito at El Toro. Okay. Yeah. And that's with shrimp. And what is your favorite place in the city for a stiff drink? Uh, oh, man. So I have a couple answers for that. Uh, one is Pop's Bar in the Mission because it's just a great neighborhood bar. Um, it's one of those places, uh, you know, where I went to Old Pop's when it was like more of like like a metal like skater bar, and then when they re revamped it, it was like, oh no, they're going to ruin Pop's, and it changed for sure. But I think it like opened it up to being more of a community bar. And I've gone in there and seen just all different kinds of people, which I think is really cool. Uh, and then my other favorite place to go is Horsey's Saloon. Um, which is uh, an offshoot of the Royal Cuckoo that's over on 19th Street, and it's all aperitifs, but you'll still get really drunk, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And don't say X-Men 3. What is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? Uh, so actually I have two, because I just watched The Game, because I saw Peter's uh, tweet about Thank it. You. So I just watched it yesterday, and that, yeah. 
I had forgotten that that was the San Francisco movie. But the other one I have to say is Sister Act, just because of how they... They re-portray Noe Valley as being the seedy part of San Francisco, and that just kills me. Like, I have friends that live over there, and I'm like, hey, do you know that that house there is actually a strip club in Sister Act? <laughs> Peter and I have gotten into many arguments with our editor-in-chief because she hates Sister Act. Yes, she does. And uh, we like a lot of other things about her, but she hates Sister Act, <laughs> and that's been a real problem. Um, Excellent. What is the earworm that haunts you the most? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> so oh, I don't want to say because it's going to make it happen to me again. <laughs> but some, sometimes I go through phases in my life where, I'm, where as I'm walking down the street, I just hear the Mario theme. So oh. like I'm just like walking down the street and I'm like, so that's thank Now you can all go home and be haunted by that. Actually, the correct answer was 1877 Cars for Kids. But, <laughs> but that's a good one. Best Muni line and least favorite Muni line. Worst. Oh, man. Um, so I'm really fortunate because I live on the 33, which I think is, I think it, would, it was actually named like the most beautiful Muni line. And I also live really close to the F market. So I take the F market a lot when I'm not trying to get anywhere uh, in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> You just feel like riding a muni bus. Yeah, exactly. Um, worst, though, I don't know. I don't want to like condemn an entire line. It's yeah. more like individual experiences I've had on some other lines. All right. And lastly, describe your perfect day in the mission. Um, so a perfect day in the mission. Um, so actually... One of my first days that I ever had in the mission, I, uh, it was, I think it might have even been like my first time in the mission, I met up with my friend uh, who was, told me, oh, I'll show you the mission district. It was my first time in this neighborhood. Um, and I live in the Castro now, but for most of my time, I've lived here in the mission. Um, but we uh, went to Dolores Park, and it was back when there was only one bench up there. Um, and we, so we hung out, um, took in the view, drank some beers, uh, we went and got a burrito at Cancun. Um, we, you know, walked up and down. I, I like to I like to walk a lot, so um, uh, so we did a lot. You know, went up Mission and, and Valencia. Uh, we had dinner at Beretta, which was really good. I haven't been there in a in a while. I gotta put that back on my list. Um, and then we went to a friend's birthday party at ATA uh, Artist Television Access right down the street, and it was a private party in there. And um, I was having so much fun that I actually texted my friend on the East Coast, because I was here on a work trip, and I texted my friend on the East Coast, and I was like, hey, when you wake up in the morning, could you text me and tell me to go to bed? Because I'm having a lot of fun, and I'm old now, and I'm worried that I'm going to really regret this in the morning. And my friend thought I was kidding. So he like wakes up at like 4 a.m. Eastern time. And he woke up and like saw that and was like, ha, ah, that's funny, and didn't do it. And so I wound up staying out so late <laughs> that, uh, th that you know, Muni was closed, and so we couldn't get home. Uh, so we went to Sparky's and uh, basically hung out in Sparky's and drank milkshakes until Bart reopened. <laughs> and then I got back downtown. And then I had to like work a full day at a conference and then get on a plane and go home. It's the best day ever. Yeah. It's pretty epic. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was fun yeah, to talk to you. Yeah, Sebastian thanks Amanda. so much for having thank me. Thank you. I'm, I'm supporting, she nailed that lightning round. I'm supporting Cosmic Amanda for mayor. Yeah. I think that's good. 
And now we'd like to welcome Dr. Emily Silverman. Hi. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Thanks for having me. So you are an internist at SF General. Can you describe what an internist does? Yes. Uh, so it's funny, the word internal medicine is what my specialty is called. And people always say internal medicine, like as opposed to what? External medicine? <laughs> Which um, is a good point. But uh, I think the idea is that we're not surgeons. We prescribe medicines and you know work from the inside out. Um, so I'm an internist, and uh, most internists will practice um, primary care in the office, in the clinic setting, or they'll practice hospital medicine, so taking care of, of people in the hospital. Some people will do a little bit of both. Um, I'm actually focused just in the hospital right now, so um, I'm actually called a hospitalist, which is a relatively new term that's been um, actually uh, coined by the Department of Medicine um, Chair Bob Wachter here at UCSF, so it's a term that originated here in San Francisco, um, and it's a sort of new brewing specialty, hospital medicine. Uh, so that's what I do. And San Francisco General is the only trauma center in the city, so if you are shot, stabbed, run over by a bus, or some other horrible thing happens to you in the borders of the city, you will be taken to SF General. So she has one of the hardest jobs there is in the city, I think. Can you describe what a typical shift is like? Sure, so uh, at any given day, I, I come into the hospital, I go into the historic building, which is not to the new shiny um, building that we have. Uh, my office is in the old building, and I um, take the elevator up to the sixth floor, to the, to the 6A ward, um, and it's pretty old school. There's like an old keypad, and I go in, and um, our office, actually, our physician workroom is in a defunct patient room. So uh, there's actually like oxygen spigots uh, protruding from the wall and, um, you know, an old accordion wall uh, where the bathroom used to be for the patient. Um, and so we sit there and we have a room full of computers and I um, come in and I take sign out from the overnight physician. Usually I carry a list of about 12 patients and so I'll hear, you know, any events overnight with my patients. I'll take over the list, sign out my pager to myself, and then I'm taking care of those 12 patients for the duration of the day. Uh, and usually I'm there 7 a.m., uh, try to be finished with my work by 5 p.m. Um, that's my sort of work-life balance goal and technically when our day is done. Um, but sometimes when people get really sick or if there's something complicated going on, I'll end up staying later till 6 or 7 p.m. What would be a mix of the issues that the patients are there for that you're treating? So as an internal medicine doctor, there's a lot of different things that I see since I'm a generalist, so I see a little bit of everything. But um, common uh, things would include... Uh, just different organs that aren't working properly. So a lot of heart failure, a lot of kidney failure, a lot of liver failure, um, which can each be caused by a variety of things. Um, I also see a lot of infections. So a lot of pneumonia, a lot of urinary infections, um, intra-abdominal infections, um, a lot of skin infections. Uh, I would say actually skin and soft tissue infections are one of the most common types of infections uh, that I see, unfortunately, um, because a lot of my patients do use intravenous drugs. Um, and so that puts them at risk to develop skin abscesses and things like that. And then on that note, um, because we're a safety net hospital, a lot of my patients um, do uh, struggle with issues like homelessness and substance use disorders. So I see a lot of people who are intoxicated or withdrawing from a variety of substances and coming in with medical complications of homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really a mix of a lot of different things. 
And in your spare time, you started your own podcast and storytelling event called The Nocturnists, in which doctors tell personal stories about what it's like to be in a hospital like SF General or other places. So tell us why you wanted to start that and why you think that's important for doctors to be able to tell their personal stories. Thank you. Yeah, so The Nocturnists um, initially started off as a live show, and I started it up when I was a second-year resident in internal medicine at UCSF. So I'm no longer in my residency, but when I was, um, I came out of intern year feeling pretty uh, burnt out, for lack of a better term. Um, these days, they're actually saying not to call it burnout and to call it instead moral distress. So I guess I was in a state of moral distress, and we can talk about that all day if you want, but I, there's just a lot of issues with the healthcare system that can be really difficult to absorb as a doctor who wants to just take care of people. Um, and, you know, the hours of residency were really getting to me. I think um, it's always important to get experience and take care of patients, but it really does sort of um, cordon you off from society in a way. There's a lot of social isolation that happens, kind of takes a toll on your personal life, your relationships, and you're just in the hospital all the time and, you know, working all the time. And unfortunately, a lot of the work that you're doing isn't really face-to-face -face with patients. It's kind of paperwork and typing notes. And I just came out of that year feeling really disconnected from myself and from my creativity, which I had always had a creative streak growing up. I actually majored in history of art uh, in college. And also just really disconnected from my own sense of humanity, because I think the two are connected, the creative side and the human side. And so I knew I wanted to do something to reconnect with those sides of myself. And I initially started actually by writing um, prose poems and posting them on a blog. And that was really fun and a great way for me to kind of get out some of the process, like the feelings that I was having as I was going through my training. Um, but I wanted to give a platform to my colleagues because really I looked around and I saw a group of people, really smart people, driven people, compassionate people, and um, there was just a lot to say, I, I felt. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll invite people to submit you know, a guest blog post, but then I thought, well, then it just starts to feel more like a literary journal and there's a bunch of those already that exist even medical theme literary journals and what what is the new thing that I'm adding to the conversation and so I was turning that around in my mind for a while um, until a friend of mine invited me to a live taping of the moth actually down at public works so I went to that show and then it just clicked for me and I thought oh this is what we should be doing in medicine because it was a medium that I had really little experience with just the spoken word live format um, and so that's really where the idea was born. And did the hospital administration like this idea, or were they <laughs> worried about divulging too much? So uh, when I got this idea, I actually walked uh, directly into the chief resident's office. And the chief resident at that time was a really wonderful uh, guy named Tim Poor. And I sat down with him, and I told him, you know, I think I want to do something like the moth, but for healthcare. And he was really supportive. Um, granted, he was just a chief resident. He wasn't, you know, the department chair or anything like that. But he really encouraged me to go ahead with it. And I, you know, actually didn't <laughs> really ask permission. I just did it. Um, and it was something that was uh, divorced from the hospital and not really um, officially tied to the hospital in any way, shape, or form. And I had four days off a month uh, for most of my uh, uh, months. And I would spend uh, some of that time driving around the city and going to different theaters and um, talking to people and figuring out how much each of them would cost to rent. And um, it really just started up from there. And then uh, I was able to uh, strong arm eight uh, different folks to come and speak at our first show and actually two of them were faculty members which I think was really important uh, to have faculty speak 
upfront because I think it provided a really interesting sort of flattening of the hierarchy to have a resident go up and tell a story and then a faculty and then everyone's in the audience together and it's just like, oh, we're all just people in this medical hierarchy, you know, in this room doesn't really matter. So I, I've listened to it and I, I love it. Um, what's the process in getting the story to such a tight, tight uh, finished product? So initially, for our very first show, we didn't have any coaching at all, and it was sort of just what it was, it was. Um, but now we actually do um, coach people, and we actually call the coaches story coaches. And so um, if you submit an idea, uh, let's say we pick a theme, we put out a call for submissions, we get 25 submissions, and we select you know, six or seven or maybe eight people who we want to feature, and then we pair each of them with a story coach. Um, and one of our best coaches and most beloved coaches is Charlie Varon, who's a writer, actor, director over at the Marsh Theater, um, not far from here. And so each coach works with their storyteller differently. Charlie really likes to bring people into the march and do the coaching in person, which is such a cool experience, I think, if you're a doctor who hasn't really had any interaction with the arts or with theater. Um, but other coaches do their sessions over the phone or over email. Some of our coaches are actually remote. We have one who's based in um, Rochester, Minnesota. We have one um, who's based in New York City, and so they kind of do it their own way. And what would you say are some misconceptions that patients have about doctors and hospitals? Anything you want to set the record straight? <laughs> well, listen to the podcast. Um, I think there's a lot, and I think really what it boils down to is that, you know, there's this perception, I think, sometimes that physicians know everything. You know, we come in with a white coat and we have this jargon that we speak in. Um, and there's this idea that we kind of, um, there's an expectation, I want to say, um, that we're just, you know, certain and that we're neutral and that we're removed. Um, but the fact of the matter is we're actually just human beings, just like you. Um, and we have doubts and we have flaws and we have fears. And although, you know, we're very skilled and highly trained, um, we have a lot of, I think, conflicting emotions around our work, um, especially in this country where there is so much to be conflicted about. Um, and so I think just kind of recognizing the humanity of doctors is really important, particularly for people who are in um, leadership roles and um, you know, are expecting physicians to you know, work 28 hours in a row. I mean, we're not robots, we're human beings. We need sleep just like any other person. Um, so I think that's really important. And I think the other misconception is that we have control over things that we simply don't have control over. So for example, you know, the cost of services, things like insurance. Um, I spent the last decade of my life in medical training and really spent very little time learning about any of those things um, and really more with my face kind of in like the medical textbook. Um, and so when questions come up around structural issues in medicine, I think people sometimes have the perception that, you know, it's my um, uh, decision what happens, or, or that I'm making money off of things that I'm that I'm not. So um, that's the other one. Yeah, that segues into my next question. Um, readers of my column know I've been writing a lot about SF General recently and their billing practices. We found out that they didn't enter into any contracts with private insurance companies, and so um, insurance companies could pay whatever portion of the bill they wanted, and the rest would be sent to the patients. We found some really horrifying examples. Probably the worst was um, a man who went in for an appendectomy and was billed $92,000 um, himself out of pocket. So um, 
SF General is always praised for its medical care, but its financial side seems to leave a lot to be desired. So I was wondering, did you know that that was happening, and what did you think when these columns started coming out? So that's an emphatic no. I didn't know uh, that that was happening. I don't really know the cost of anything that I order and I, you know, when I'm ordering tests or things like that. And I think there's some dispute about whether or not doctors sh should be aware of what they're ordering because on the one hand, you want to be cost conscious and you want to protect resources. But on the other, you would never want the knowledge of what things cost to hinder your decision making or for you to, you know, for implicit biases to affect the way that you're, that you're treating patients. Um, so no, uh, I didn't know that, and I, I have actually been following the work of Sarah Cliff for a long time mm -hmm. in Vox, and I, you know she's an amazing reporter and has done some really uh, important work uh, reporting on healthcare and. Um, there's a podcast actually called An Arm and a Leg that's dedicated entirely to exploring this issue of cost in healthcare. And so when I saw Sarah's article, it was actually on Twitter when I first saw it and I saw the name of my workplace in the title, I was shocked um, and I read the piece and you know, I uh, similarly was horrified by what I read. Um, I think what's reassuring is that uh, a lot of us, I think, at the hospital had that reaction. Mm -hmm. And um, my understanding is that the, the hospital has actually made some changes. Um, we have had a couple of emails from Susan Ehrlich, the CEO of the hospital, about the changes that they've mm -hmm. made to try to improve this. Because, And I think even the phrasing in the email was, this doesn't align with our values and things like that. But I think it just speaks to the power of journalism and what you guys do and being able to kind of point out issues and really influence change. Great. Do you want to do the lightning round, Peter? I, I think lightning round is like, you own that. That's okay. trademarked. Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe I could ask one question. <laughs> Well, you know the first question. What is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Okay, so um, there's a place, I live uh, near Alamo Square Park, and there's a place on Divisadero Street called the Little Chihuahua oh, yeah, that I, I really that. like. There's also a place nearby that's called Papalote um, that they have a very good burrito as well. And I imagine after your long shifts at the hospital, you could use a stiff drink. So where do you go? <laughs> so I used to live actually um, right on the Panhandle on the border of um, Coal Valley. And there's a Mexican restaurant in Coal Valley called Padrecito. And they have a drink there that's called La Copa Verde um, that I just love. And it has like a sprinkle, I think, of paprika on top. And so it has this nice savory uh, flavor to it. And I haven't been in a while, actually, which is a good reminder <laughs> that I should go. That was very specific, and I want to go there now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a green, it's in a martini glass, and it's like bright green, and then there's like a red paprika sprinkled on top, and you taste it, and it has, it's not too, um, it's not like a Bloody Mary or anything, but it's just a really unique. You had drink. me at paprika. <laughs> <laughs> and your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? I've always really loved Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. Very um, good. And Robin Williams is a genius. I miss him dearly. And uh, yeah, I just have so many memories in my mind of watching that movie over and over again. What is the weirdest reason that a patient has ever come to SF General for care? <laughs> it's hard to say because there are a lot of... Um, <laughs> FROs. <laughs> there are a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of patients in the city who struggle with um, with a psychosis, um, whether that's you know just underlying psychosis or sometimes it can be um, substance-induced mm -hmm. psychosis. And so I would never want to poke fun at that because mm -hmm. that's not a, a funny thing. But I have to admit, sometimes the things that people say can be pretty uh, pretty entertaining. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
What is your favorite hospital-based TV show or movie? Oh, okay. Um, people sometimes will ask which is the most realistic, and I would say probably the answer to that is Scrubs. Um, I think that... <laughs> Not Grey's Anatomy? No. <laughs> um, that, that divide between the surgeons and the medicine doctors is actually pretty real, um, sort of more of the jock versus brainy... Uh, divide. Um, but I also do have a soft spot in my uh, heart for House. Um, I just, there's some episodes of that show that are just really witty. I would say very not accurate medically, but just some nice, some <laughs> snappy dialogue. Do you guys fall in love with each other all the time? <laughs> no, surprisingly, <laughs> I, we're all married. We're all, you know, committed in committed long-term relationships. That's not true. Some single people too, but, um, yeah, not a whole lot of sex going on in the call rooms, I must oh. say. <laughs> Bummer. I wanted that to be my next expose. <laughs> and do you call it SF General or Zuckerberg General Hospital? I used to call it SFGH or San Francisco General, and then one day I remember getting an email and it kept saying ZSFG, and I was like, what is that? And then it took me a while to realize what that is. So now I've um, become more used to saying uh, ZSFG. There's actually um, an old novel that's called The House of God, um, that's almost like Catch-22, but instead of the military, it's the hospital. It's sort of like an absurdist novel. And in that book, there's a uh, wing of the hospital that they call the Wing of, of Zoc, um, which I think is a parody about like these you know wings that are funded by philanthropists. And so for a while there, we would uh, tongue-in-cheek call it the Wing of Zuck. Um, <laughs> but that's sort of worn off now. I like that. The Wing of Zuck. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was fun to yeah, talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And lastly, we'd like to bring up the founders of Muni Diaries, Tara Ramroop and Eugenia Chen. We're super excited to have you guys here. Thank you we've, for having us. Thank you've you. Had, you've hosted us before. We've, we've, so. We're doing a little bit of a switcheroo. This, this is yeah. our second rodeo, right? Peter? Yeah, this is yeah. technically yeah. our second rodeo. <laughs> so you guys have been documenting the best and worst of Muni for 11 years now, is that right? 11, yep. Both Long for time. 11 years, yes. Nice. Tell us why in the world you started Muni Diaries, <laughs> why you wanted to spend all of your free time talking about buses. Well, we started Media Diaries. It actually started as a student project, believe it or not. Um, I was at San Francisco State. We were riding the bus to school all the time. And um, it, it really started as this like project idea. And blogging at the time, like WordPress was just coming on. It was free. So yeah, we're in 2008. Like, yeah, we're like, let's buy all the domains, which we did. <laughs> and here we are, 11 years later. Exactly. So we just basically bought a domain and started throwing throwing up content onto it. Well, yeah, like the, on the like, on a, standard content story. Well, on a more serious note, I, I feel like everyone has a muni story. I'm sure everybody here has everyone a, at least has two. Um, and I, I feel like for Tara and I, it's a way to document what it's like to live here. So we really wanted to have like a shared experience that we can talk about. We know you guys all have something to say, and you know, every day there's something new. And every now and again, there are reporters who write every single line in the city. Crazy for, people. Who are those For people? journalism, I mean, who are those people? Which is even crazier than Muni Diaries, maybe. Did you guys have, like, a foundational Muni story? Was there, like, just some ride that you had where you are like, I, I've got to make this a big part of my life? 
No, not really. I mean, I think all, all of them. No. <laughs> all, all, and I feel like every muni line is the best and worst line ever. Um, no, yeah. I feel like really it's like the everyday experience that we 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 get to school and we we would tell each other, you know, you won't believe what happened today. So I feel like it's really like we notice that everyone has something to say about it, and that's what yeah. we were really grounding our project on. Yeah. So you you had started learning this at school, uh, but I feel like every again every single person in this room would be like, oh, I, I was late here because of Muni, or I was late to a party, or I was late to dinner, or late lateness is clearly a theme, a theme in my life. But you know, it's it tends to be the thing that you lead with. Like, there's always something just kooky and strange that happens, or something awesome that happens, and it, it tends to be the the thing that jumps out where you're like, I have to tell somebody that, and I feel like we really noticed that about we're, everybody. Yeah, we're here to blow up the party talk, so to speak, and yeah, that's, I feel like it's a, it's something we all could share and really kind of, I, I would say like commiserate and celebrate. Exactly, commiserate and celebrate. So it wasn't like a seminal muni story yeah. as much as it was all, all of everybody's muni stories put together. And for, you went off into BART Diaries. And San Francisco Diaries. All, well, right? all, all. Yeah, yes. we tried AC Transit Diaries, but we own the domain. But people are in incredibly well behaved. So really? yeah, Caltrain Diaries. They were very polite on that. Yeah. I mean, there'd be like Too occasional, occasional shoes on the seat, and then you're just like, I don't we're know not if we impressed. could build build a whole storytelling channel on on shoes on a seat. Not but. a lot of man spreading on AC Transit. People aren't bringing Christmas trees on AC Transit. No, I mean no, just Muni, just, just Muni. And, and occasionally Bart. I do sometimes. see Christmas trees on Bart sometimes. Yeah. I don't know if you agree, Peter, but I feel like when I moved to the city in 1999, everybody loved Bart and hated Muni, and now everybody hates Bart. And some people, like the four of us at this table, actually like Muni. That's agree. it. Yeah, we, 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 we are the only ones. Yeah. Yes. I was wondering why Muni has four people who like it now and why everybody <laughs> hates Bart. Why well, do you think their reputations have flipped? Well, it's like that thing where it's just like everything old is new again, right? <laughs> and so you're just sort of like, you know what's cool again? Scrunchies. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know what's it, cool again? Muni. Is it cool again? I don't think it was I, ever I, cool. I'm just going to put it out there. I still don't like scrunchies. I like Muni better than I like scrunchies. I'm going to put that out there. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have seen the BART advertisements um, in, in the 70s, I guess, when BART was first um, advertising its services. And, like, the videos had advertised it to be some kind of, like, like first-class travel. There were, like, yes. reading lamps, people dressed up to take BART. It was, like, Tomorrowland also. It yeah. was, like, like, Tomorrowland tinged with, like, this is... This is the, the future is now. I feel yeah. like they hyped it up too much. I think that's the problem. <laughs> that's terrible. Don't talk about Bart that way, Eugene. Oh my God. No, I, I do agree. I feel like Bart kind of came in and everybody was just like, this is our subway. It will deliver us from Muni. This is, this is the thing that'll take us all over, the, all over the Bay Area at 30 miles an hour. I don't know how fast that thing goes, actually. I think it's about 30. Well, um, I actually think we get equally like, crazy, funny, like awesome stories on Muni and Bart. So like yeah. on, on our pages, I, I don't see a huge like l difference in the love-hate. I, I feel like it's love-hate yeah. all around. Do you have a favorite like, like category of things that people send you? For me, it's, it's the strange things people carry on Muni oh, and Oh yeah, Bart. that's ours too. We call that strange cargo. Okay. First of all, could you share a few of your favorites of that? And <gasps> 
Oh, there was a guy that a huge piece of styrofoam, like the the size of a small child. I don't know what that. No, was No, it for. was the size of an adult. Remember? <laughs> more, like more somebody, like. maybe it was just the angle of the photo, but somebody had tweeted us or sent us. I mean, our, our community sends us all these things. So someone, we're just like, yeah. Well, where? Which line was this? How did this happen? <laughs> but yeah, it was a person-sized piece of styrofoam, and the person was just like, "This is my piece of styrofoam. I'm just taking it home." I think there was also San a, Francisco a, loves a costume party, so like it was probably a costume. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. I also just didn't care. There was we, giant we have, a, we have a hashtag. I think it's Halloween or just San Francisco. And on Muni, you can never tell. Um, somebody also brought a taxidermy deer head. Um, yep. And just like put it on There's his lap on Muni. There's a mattress. Live frogs. Yeah. Or live frog. One, One frog leapt out of the thing and then got lost. I think it was like in a Tupperware. It was we, in a Tupperware. We do hard-hitting journalism too. <laughs> I know so. we both we both actually used to work in journalism is the thing, and then so I feel like we were just like let's turn our attention to like stuff that happens. Things we on really here. care about. <laughs> What's the grossest behavior you've heard about happening on Muni? Oh, oh God, frottering! Don't don't touch ladies with your junk on Muni. I'm sorry, I'm gonna put that oh. out there. That's fucking disgusting. Well, we had a story from a bar operator actually. He said that one day he was, you know, at the end of the line, and he like went to the end of the car, and he sees this guy. He's like looking, like this guy's passed out, looking down, and he had like what he thought, like he thought that this guy was dead, like he thought it was like blood and guts, and it turned out that that uh, I think he has spaghetti. Then yeah, it was just spaghetti. Yeah, Yeah, and he he was so he had just thrown up. He had just thrown up on Bart. It's happened to the best of us, (laughs) I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So the so this poor person had just like thrown up on Bart, and and our operator friend found him and was like, "What do I do?" And yeah, you know, it's a hard job. It is a hard (laughs) job. (laughs) Just looking, you kind of have the thirty thousand foot view of Muni. What do you think is getting better, and what do you think has been getting worse in the last decade? I think people. Let's start with. Let's start with the worst. Um, people. People are getting more impatient about public transit. I think. I think that the generally San Francisco, we've always been a little bit. You know, we we're fueled by outrage. I feel like is yeah. is something that we we've talked about um, in other venues. Um, but but we all kind of got that Muni was how we got everywhere, and it was fine, and it was gross sometimes, and every now and again somebody would throw up on themselves, but you would deal with it. Well, and I think what's and we're getting, a little impatient now. Yeah, what's getting better, I think, is that people are talking about it more. Um, when we first started, I think we we knew people loved talking about it, and I think with social media, like people are are able to like talk about their experiences, and there's more conversation around. Yes culture on the bus and like what we expect public transit to be and that I think is really positive positive. and I think that that has been it's like it, it's it's been a, te- a test it's almost like a like a litmus test for kind of what's happening in the city overall where it's like we we have these conversations about Muni and often they can also be extended to conversations about the city at large. Like, it's very, it's almost like therapy, right? Where it's just like, well, it's not really only about Muni, is it? And so I, I feel like that's been, that's been cathartic and it's been interesting and it's been nice to be at the head of a, of a venue or a, a channel that does that. I felt like when, when Heather and I rode every Muni bus, um, and we were a little bit loopy, but there you, were Muni you, buses right. like, there, there were Muni buses that, that I didn't want to get off. Like, I'm like, I would ride this Muni line for fun. The The 67. I didn't want to get off the 67. Really? I mean, also, it was a unicorn, so you found a 67. (laughs) Uh, 44. Like, I just wanted to keep going on the 44 and, and... 
Like, Why? What did you like about him? I just surprises. You know, there's a few of those muni lines, like the Corbett, where you're just you're, you go up a hill and suddenly you have this beautiful view. Um, the neighborhood lines, like it's a gr- group of people you don't see if you're just working downtown, and everything that people complain about in San Francisco, um, you can focus on that, and you can focus on those headlines. And then if you go out and randomly get on a muni line, you realize, oh, all the people I'm reading about and all the people I'm thinking about are not what this city is. And and so I, there were a few lines that I felt like that. I'm like, this is, this is like going back in time, but maybe it's not going back in time. Maybe just my head's not right, and San Francisco's <laughs> different than I think it is, so. <laughs> No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. And we bring up the '76 first because we're just going to plug. P- Peter actually appeared before Peter and Heather were at Meaning Diaries Live, our live show. Peter was a storyteller on one of our shows years ago, and he talked about the '76 candlestick yeah. and how it's basically a party bus. Yeah, totally was party back bus. in the day. Yeah, yeah, back in the day. So. And now the '76 goes across the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, it was the '78. It was the '78X. Was the candlestick? Or the '78? Yeah, the '78. Yeah. Sorry, the '78. Yeah, all good. I know. Yeah. I should know better. I'm sorry. R.I.P. 78X. That was a beautiful bus. Candlestick Express. We're getting deep into muni. We're getting murder. really yeah. deep into muni. I hope you're murder. taking notes on all this. You know, 44. Just go ride that tomorrow. 44 O'Shaughnessy. Yeah. Yeah. Love yeah. the O'Shaughnessy. Yeah. So, broader question. The city does a survey of its residents every year and mm-hmm. gives each department a grade. The new one just came out, and Muni scored the lowest, a C plus. Libraries scored the best at an A minus. Do you think that's fair? Would you give Muni a C plus? Yes. Uh, yeah. Have you guys been on Muni? <laughs> yes, uh, we would. Yeah. I, I feel like we really celebrate the the culture of riding public transit, being able to you know like meet people who you otherwise wouldn't have met, and you know all the stories that we've told every show. And but you know we take Muni. We know we know it's you know it's not what we want it to be yeah, at the moment. It, doesn't, it, it isn't as user friendly as it could be. It's it's bumpy. It's messy, but. Living in San Francisco is also bumpy and messy, yeah. so I don't know. It's a, there's a broader question yeah. about whether we would also give San Francisco a C plus. So <laughs> it's mean. also a hard problem. So I think, yeah, we're. I think it's fair, but we're not. You know, who who has the perfect answer? Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Who's in charge of that answer? <laughs> but yes. <laughs> so so best and worst muni line. Oh. If you if you. I've been thinking mm-hmm. about this one. I feel, can I say the same thing for best and worst? Yeah. I think every line is the best and worst. <laughs> you know, you, you Spo- spoiler alert, it's all of them. <laughs> um, I would say that the F Market Wharves is the best and the worst. Be- I love the F Market. Why do you say it's the worst? It crawls, because it, it doesn't go anywhere. Minutes, yeah, because, yeah. exactly. And then, so I used to commute on it, and I think that that's partially my problem, is that I still kind of, since I haven't commuted on it, I feel, I feel very nostalgic and and like oh god you know it's actually kind of a nice thing that we have I shouldn't be such an asshole but at the time when I was commuting on it for about seven years I was just like why why is why why is this happening why why is this the the way that I have to get to work like why can't San Francisco do better I remember thinking that a lot um but and today, I would say that be, because of that context, it's for me, it, it's both best and worst. But it's, but it's gorgeous. It's historical. I love being on it now. I actually ride you know, all the market lines a lot right now, 6, 7, F, 
nine, all of them, those are kind of the ones that I'm on most frequently. And whenever I get on an F, I'm just like, mm, yes. Yeah. Well, you kind of can't believe that's like your commute, you know, like it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, like we've actually surveyed our readers, not about best and worst, but like a lot of other categories. Like we have heard that the N Judah reportedly by its ridership is the hottest line. I don't like by like was this like I remember what like beauty beauty wise like well, like I, yeah I'm not sure what they mean, but they writers like of the N Judah say swipe, it's the hot, not not temperature right on, yeah they they would swipe right, but Judah. this is before swiping. <laughs> so N Judah apparently hottest lying. I think we have the most stories from the 38. We do yeah yeah. So I would say I would add the 38 also to another like it's almost like the best lines are also the worst lines. You can't you can't separate them like because then they're they're just the most, especially to us, because they would be the most interesting in, in a lot of ways. And that means that they're great sometimes, and that means they're the just absolute worst sometimes. Mm -hmm. So. I just realized I stole one of Heather's lightning round questions. So I apologize, <laughs> Heather. I've ruined my wife's birthday, and I stole. Yeah, Heather's I mean, we've been thinking about how terrible you are. Yeah. Yeah. That's awful. That's the theme of tonight's show. Are you guys here's, ready for the lightning the round? I, yeah. yeah, I was ready. born ready for this lightning <laughs> round. No, just, they're gonna send us some crazy questions that okay. we don't have the answers to. Okay. Favorite burrito. Oh no. <laughs> I don't I just didn't I, see that one coming. I, what? No. <laughs> so because I lived on 20th between Mission and Valencia for seven years, I picked Cancun, specifically the one on Valencia at 19th. Um, but it was specifically because of the carne asada, which I loved. And this is maybe gross, but there was always kind of this smell of cleaning products in there, kind of so mixed in with it. You knew it was clean, yeah, right? It's That's reassuring. exactly. And yeah. then so there was always this sort of like industrial cleaning product smell associated with the delicious carne asada. And I, I don't know, just the combination of those things still gets me going. I'm going to leave here and get one right now. <laughs> All right, as for me, I don't fact check this, but I, I don't have a favorite burrito place. I'm sorry, but... Oh my God, I, Eugenia! I know, don't, don't revoke my San Francisco passport. Um, I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> she does have a spreadsheet. She has a spreadsheet. I she has like five spreadsheets. It's, be, it's because she's been thinking about this for 20 years is that she doesn't actually do. have an answer. No, okay. Uh, every burrito is a good burrito. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, well, that, I, that's I, not, that is not true. I, I have a it. spreadsheet about my favorite Chinese restaurants in San Francisco. Instead, to offer you, so see me, see me after the show. I have it broken down by um, how, how good the translation is on the menu. Like the, the, <laughs> the worse it is, the better the food. Um, how much relationship the Chinese name of the restaurant has to do with the English name of the restaurant. Like the further, like the, the more irrelevant it is, also the better the food. So I, I will. Tell you all about it after the show, but um, Great Eastern on Jackson Street. Awesome. Nice. What is your favorite place in the city for a stiff drink? The Latin American Club. Yeah. There, I, I just, the drinks are always enormous and so strong. Yeah, Let me watch tell out you. for those. Yeah. Um, I love Bender's. Bender's is good. Yeah. You, can you still get tater? Can, can you still get tater tots in Pliny there? Yeah, tater tots is yeah. like the perfect food. Like, I mean, there's just, nothing else I need. Yeah. I mean, Chinese restaurants. Maybe yeah, instead of Cancun, maybe I'll go there and just get some tater tots. We're right well, here. Why not both? We'll we'll make it happen. What is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? 
So I married an axe murderer. We have talked about this, Heather. We have definitely talked about this because I just think that movie is hilarious. I loved Mike Myers. Like, I thought that he, you know, I I kind of grew up around when he was very popular on on SNL and Wayne's World. I lived for Wayne's World. And then so when he made that movie and it was based in San Francisco and I grew up around here, I'm from South San Francisco, I was just like... This is, this is speaking to me, so to this day. Did you see it in a theater? Because apparently nobody did. It bombed. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't, actually. No, no, I didn't. I, I probably rented it from the uh, Blockbuster in San Bruno. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to give a shout-out to Stra- uh, Star Trek Four. Yeah. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. There's, a, there's an important muni ride, or a, a bus ride. Don't in that play one. your shitty music on the bus. 76X. Yeah. That is the 76X, yes. <laughs> Heather has not seen Star Trek Four. This has been something I've been bugging That's her about. That's even worse than not having a favorite burrito. I'm sorry. <laughs> Excuse me. Part, it's of, on. part of me is mad at her about it, and part of me is envious that she gets to see Star Trek Four for the first time. Are you going to be together when you when you watch it for the first time? Because well, we I feel like we this is a whole it. episode. Um, we're going to watch it on Kelly's anniversary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or on one of your kids' birthdays, maybe, just to, like... We want to do a screen of Star Trek Four, but with our movie series that we've started, we did So I Married an Axe Murder, and we're going to do a few more. It's kind of like turning the nuclear key. We have to both do it at the same time, so we can't do Star Trek Four until <laughs> Heather approves it, so I'm a little nervous about this. He but. sent me a description, which did not make me want to see the movie. He's like, yeah. <laughs> I okay, think Peter, you're not selling it. and a military base. Yeah, yeah, I think if you only read a description, it might be kind of hard. Like, it needs to be, you need to pump it up. <laughs> yeah. But her response was kind of like, that sounds like Star Trek, you know. So, I don't know. It's the <laughs> least Star Trek Star Trek. That's advertised. <laughs> so, um, Mayor London Breed is hunting for a new chief of Muni. She's given the boot to Ed Riskin. Eugenia. I'm just going to go. It's a two-parter. <laughs> I'll bring my spreadsheets, guys. It's going to be fine. What are the top three characteristics that that person should have? This person should ride Muni every day, don't this you guys ex- think? Thank you. Thank yeah, you. That like person should our have pain. experience <laughs> with Muni. Yeah, ride yeah. Muni every day. First, I think first requirement. And it's Definitely. different. I know a lot of a lot of these head, heads of orgs get installed after having led, you know, the, the transit system in wherever. Or in, like, like no, no. You, you can't have been the head of the bus system in wherever, no matter where it is, and be, and be able to handle San Francisco if you've never actually ridden Muni. So you have to have Muni experience. That's, that's one. No, I, I, think, I think that's important to like really, like for us, obviously, for many reasons, I think public transit is so core to our experience of living in San Francisco. So I, I think, you know, writing public transit, really understand that we want it to be better. And I think, you know, like, I, writers first, you know, all, all of that. But I think writing transit and really kind of making a core experience of living here. Yeah, understanding that, that it is, like, it, San Francisco is a city. And sure, you, you have, we have any number of options available to us now with rideshare and or walking. I walk a lot these days, but you, you Muni just has to work or, or else it, it's hard to, to sell a city if you're like, well, it's kind of, it's transit actually kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, I think we have a couple of candidates here maybe. 
Well, you I know. I, I already nominated Eugenia. So. <laughs> I just say like not an old white dude. Can I say it? <laughs> Sorry. Well, there Eugenia. <laughs> and again. Okay, we have the new chief of media right here. I know you heard it here first. <laughs> well, thank you guys both for coming tonight. It was well, thank good you for having you. us. Thank you guys. This is so fun. Thank you. Thank you to Peter and Heather. It's a round of applause to Peter and Heather yeah, too. And for Beta Brand for having us. And the Beta Brand. Thank you so much for coming on a Warriors night. Uh, if you're DVRing it, we won't give out the score. Um, and uh, Rainy, thank you for coming. Thank you to Breda Brand for putting this on. I really appreciate it. They've been fantastic. And um, thank you all for coming. This is great. And thank you to our guests, Amanda and Tara and Eugenia and uh, Emily. It's uh, great to have you all here. Thanks for coming. Go yeah. Warriors. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Heather Knight and our guests, Amanda Guest, Emily Silverman, Eugenia Chen, and Tara Ramroop. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S. Never.